0: Well, our study of the Gospel of John, as Brother Tyler mentioned a moment ago, brings us this morning to chapter 20, and the most epic event in all of human history, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So after you find your place in John 20, I want you to mark it somehow. Then I want you to join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll not be there long, just for a moment or two, but I want you to go to to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. A man by the name of Michael Green once said this, Christianity does not hold the resurrection to be one among many tenets of belief. Without faith in the resurrection there would be no Christianity at all. And folks, Mr. Green is exactly right. Everything we believe as Christians hinges on the fact that Jesus died, was buried, and three days later, he rose again. In the verses that We're going to look at briefly here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul explains the implications if there was no resurrection. And here's what he says beginning in verse 12. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. And your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because... We have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. So here's what Paul tells us here, that if Christ did not rise from the grave, then we would have no faith. Throughout history, preachers have stood to proclaim the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But in verse 14, Paul states that such preaching is vain. It's worthless. It's useless if Jesus did not come forth from the grave. But not only that, not only is our preaching vain... But he says, those who have believed that preaching have believed a lie. Paul said, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is in vain. Listen, if Christ has not raised from the dead, then the Christian faith is a joke. And, according to Paul, if Christ did not come forth from the tomb on that first Easter morning, the apostles and all other preaching preachers, including me, who have ever preached that we serve a risen Savior, are colossal liars. If there was no resurrection... We have no faith. If there is no resurrection, then we have no forgiveness. He said in verse 15, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. And look at this church, ye are yet in your sins. How important is the resurrection If it didn't happen like the Bible says it happened, then we are still trapped in the bondage and the condemnation of our sins. Here's what another author had to say. If the resurrection is not an historic fact, then the power of death remains unbroken. And with it, the effect of sin... And the significance of Christ's death remains uncertified. And accordingly, believers are yet in their sins precisely where they were before they heard of Jesus' name. What did he just say? In short, he said this. If there is no resurrection, then there is no salvation. And if there is no salvation, then everything we sung about this morning is just foolishness. There is no hope of heaven. And then look at verse 18. Then they also, which are fallen asleep, that means they've died Then they which have fallen asleep in Christ, if there be no resurrection, Paul says, then they are perished. If there's no resurrection, church, we have no faith. If there's no resurrection, we have no forgiveness. If there's no resurrection, we have no future. We have no future. But, verse 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead. And here's what that means today. It means that our faith is genuine. It means that our forgiveness is guaranteed. And it means that our future is glorious. Somebody say amen. Now, back to John chapter 20. I wanted you to understand the importance of the resurrection. It's not just one of many beliefs. It is the focal belief of Christianity. It's incredibly important. And that's the point that we come to in the life of Christ in our study of the gospel of John. Verse 1, John chapter 20, verse 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Now, there are a lot of different Marys in the Bible. And if you don't understand which one it's talking about, you could get confused. There is Mary of course, who was the, Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. And then there's the Mary, who was the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And then there's the Mary, who, who was the mother of James and Joseph, two of the Lord's disciples. And then there's another Mary. She was the mother of Mark. And then there is Mary Magdalene. And although Mary Magdalene plays an important role in the life of Christ. Oddly enough, we know little about her. We know that she came from the village of of Magdala, which was located on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. We know from Luke's Gospel in chapter 8 that she was part of a group of women who became followers of Christ. During his earthly ministry, she and other women joined themselves to Christ and the disciples and followed them from village to village. And they offered them financial support and helping them with, in, in various ways. But here's what is perhaps the best known fact about the life of, of this particular Mary. It's found in, in Mark. Chapter 16 and verse 9, now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, notice this, out of whom he had cast seven devils. Before she met Jesus, this woman's life was totally enslaved by demonic spirits, devils as Mark calls them. We're not told how this came about uh, in her. But you can rest assured this morning that if being possessed by one demon was bad, then being possessed by seven was seven times worse. And we're not given a lot of detail about Mary's life and, 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 and the havoc that, that these demonic spirits must have wreaked on her life but we read about others in the Word of God who were demonically possessed, like the, uh, the maniac of Gadara, and then there's the demon-possessed slave girl over there in the book of, of Acts chapter 16, I think it was, that followed Paul and Silas, and we're told a little bit in those two stories about uh, the nature of what it was like to, to live a life like Mary must have lived, I'm guessing words such as desperate and insane and horrific and hopeless and hellish would be good descriptors, but then she met Jesus. And like everyone's life who has ever met Jesus, she was never the same. And no doubt, Mary was in love with Jesus. Not as a bunch of goofy Hollywood producers or book authors would have us to believe. She wasn't in love with Jesus in an immoral sense. She wasn't married to Jesus. They didn't have children together. But she loved him because of what he had done for her. She loved him in a way that led her to a life of full commitment and service to the one who had changed her life forever. As a matter of fact, Mary was one of those who followed Jesus all the way to the cross. It says in Mark 15, Mary was an eyewitness of the horrors of the crucifixion. But not only that, she hung around long enough to watch Joseph of Arimathea take the body of the Lord Jesus down from the cross, and she saw where he buried the Lord. And so early in the morning, while it was still dark, She and other women, we're told from the other Gospels, there were others with her. They came to the tomb. And they found the stone had been rolled away. And so she runs back to tell the others. Verse 2, then she runneth, And cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Mary's first explanation of the empty tomb was that somebody had stolen the body. So she was like everyone else, including the disciples. She had failed to understand the Lord's clear teaching about how he was going to die and was going to be buried, but that three days later he would rise again. Anyway, she runs and tells Peter and John, who, by the way, never mentions himself by name, John that is. He never mentions himself by name in any of the verses of the Gospel of John. He always refers to himself as the other disciple. And and here's why I point that out. Look at verse 3. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple... So we've got Peter and John, they're running to the to the to the tomb they come to the sepulcher verse 4 so they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun peter and came first to the sepulcher now time out this is probably only funny to me but john goes to all of this trouble to never mention himself to ne- never draw attention to himself in all of his gospel <laughs> But he wants everybody in the world to know that he outran Peter to the tomb. (laughs) All right. And here's what's even funnier. He didn't just point that out once. He points it out twice. Look at verse 5. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him... And went into the sepulchre, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also the other disciple, you know, that one who came first to the (laughs) sepulchre? And he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And they didn't know it because Jesus didn't teach it. Jesus taught it over and over and over again. They didn't know it because they didn't get it. Then the disciples went away again under their own home. So now Peter and John are gone. Mary comes back to the tomb, and she's filled with sorrow. Unfortunately, we've all faced sorrow. For some, it was for the same reason that Mary was experiencing such deep sorrow. It's because they've lost someone that they love. For others, it could be loss of of another kind. But nonetheless, the pain and the devastation are just as real. The overwhelming sense of emptiness and helplessness seems to be more than you can stand. A lot of things can happen during those times. I'm talking about those times of Emotional devastation, those times of overwhelming grief and sorrow, a lot of things can happen during those times. As are illustrated in the following verses of our text, and that's where I really want to focus our attention this morning, and I'll read the verses, and then I want to go back and point out a few things to you this morning about Mary and her sorrow. So let's begin in verse 11. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping. Now if you know anything about the Israelis and anything about Israeli custom, back in this day especially, but even to some degree in the day and age in which we live, this weeping wasn't just the shedding of tears. It was wailing. It was crying out. And that's what she was doing. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked in to the sepulchre. And verse 12 says that she sees two angels in white. One of them sitting at the head, the other sitting at the feet where the body of Jesus had been. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him, Jesus, to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if If thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not. And we get the, the picture here that she has fallen at his feet and she's perhaps wrapped her arms around his feet as to say, I've lost you once, but I'm not going to lose you again. And Jesus says, Don't touch me, for I'm not ascended yet to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend to my Father. And your father, and to my God and your God, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Here's the first thing that I would like to point out from these verses this morning, and it's this sometimes what we perceive to be a burden is actually a blessing. Mary looks into the tomb. And she weeps, get this, she weeps because the body is not there. She is weeping over an empty tomb. In her mind, the empty tomb signified yet another scene in the nightmare that had been the passion week. He's suffered and he's died and now they didn't have enough respect for him to let him lay there, and now they've taken him, but what she perceived to be a burden was in reality the greatest blessing that she could have ever experienced because Jesus was alive. A number of years ago, Katie and I had been out of town for some reason, and When we got back into town, she started seeing these little bites on her body. And she originally thought that they were mosquito bites, but they weren't. And eventually, she went to a dermatologist who told her that she was being bitten by bedbugs. Now, ladies, if you've ever dealt with bedbugs... Then you can understand the devastation that she was experiencing on many different levels. But here's the point of the story what at first she perceived to be a huge burden actually became a huge blessing. Because in that examination, the doctor also found five melanomas that probably would not have been found had it not been for those bug bites, or at least would not have been found when it was. You tracking with me? Here's what F.B. Myers said in his book on the Gospel of John, and he writes this with respect to Mary weeping because the tomb is empty. Now, this is easy for us to see because we're looking back on it. She was right there. This is in real time, and he's not there, and she's weeping. And here's what he had to say. We all make mistakes like this. Our treasures, whether of things or people, which had been our pride and joy, pass from us. And we think that we can never be happy again. We suppose that God's mercies are clean gone forever. But all the while, near at hand, a transfigured blessing waits to greet us. Now church, think about this. Aren't you glad this morning that Mary didn't find what she was looking for? Aren't you glad today that Jesus was gone? Because had there not been a resurrection, there would be no Savior, and therefore we would have no hope. Right now, you may be grieving over maybe the loss of a job, or the loss of a relationship, or a failed venture of some kind, or... Maybe a physical setback or something else that seems like a a loss in your life. But in reality, as we see here, that may not be the case at all. Let us learn this morning from Mary that things are not always what they seem. And we cannot always trust our judgment regarding situations that we face in our life. Now, here's the second thing. Too often, we view our difficulties through the eyes of the impossible rather than the I'm possible. How many times have we been guilty of viewing the challenges and the struggles in our life the same way Mary viewed the empty tomb? That is... We assess the situation based only upon what we know to be humanly, listen, humanly possible. I mean, as we look at a situation in our life, and we say, this is bad. This is really bad. And we speculate about the outcome, and all the while we leave out any possibility of divine intervention we leave no room for the miraculous we leave, we leave no room for the impossible to become the i'm possible i would submit to you today that looking at our problems and concluding that it can't be done without giving any consideration to the power of God is a grave mistake. I'm telling you, with God, all things are possible. And that includes whatever you're facing right now. It doesn't matter what it is. With God, there's always the possibility of resurrection, And I would never stand here, I've never have, and I'm not going to do it today, and and tell you that God is going to do everything that you ask Him to do. But I will tell you that the chances are slim to none of Him doing something about a situation you never bring to Him. Well, I'm not going to pray about this because it's impossible. That's on you. Because, again, with God, nothing is impossible. Here's the third thought. Just because we can't see Jesus doesn't mean he's not there. Look at verse 14. And when she had thus said, she turned herself and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus was so close that Mary could, and indeed did, literally reach out and touch him. But at the beginning of all of this, she didn't realize that it was him who was there. And may I say that this is not an uncommon, reality during times of great sorrow and great grief. Sometimes, and I'm talking about even, even the, 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 the most seasoned and mature spiritually, I'm talking about Christians who are spiritually mature and, and well seasoned, find it hard to see Jesus When their eyes are filled with tears and their hearts are breaking. Sometimes it's it's easy for us to wonder, does he even see? Does he even care? Does he even know what I'm facing? And we ask ourselves, where in the world is he anyway? And we can become so numb when in the grip of sorrow and grief that we just cannot feel Him, if I can put it that way. We we just cannot sense His presence in our life. I'm talking about when the circumstances have turned against us. When everything in our life seems to be going down the tubes. And and when our life seems to be a a tangled mess of threads. It's hard to see Jesus. Can I get a witness right there? It's hard to see Jesus. Because we are so absorbed. Absorbed by the grief, and the pain, and the sorrow. And our tears seem to to form a, a veil of sorts through which we just cannot see. I'm not sure who to credit for this, but it's right on. They said this, we are so absorbed in sorrow, That we do not see him who comes to soothe it. We often think he is the farthest when he is the nearest. The one who promised to never, Hebrews 13, never leave us nor forsake us. Listen, church. He's often the closest to us when we feel the most alone. Mary couldn't see Jesus. Mary, at this point, couldn't feel Jesus. And maybe you've been there, and maybe you are there today. let's take heart from Mary's story. Though we may not be able to see him, and we may not be able to sense his presence, he is there. Because he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And this is a beautiful lesson for us. And I want you to understand this today. It's not our awareness of God that determines his involvement in our lives or his presence near us. Let me say that again. It's not our awareness of God that determines his involvement in our lives or his presence near us. I want to take just a moment and illustrate that to you from the life Of a man named Job. For those who may not know, there was a a time in the Old Testament when an Old Testament character, a real man who lived a real life, his name was Job. And there was a time in his life When he lost all of his possessions, he lost his family, he lost his health, and at one point in the story of his life, he even lost the will to live. And over time, he lost any sense of the Lord's presence in his life. As a matter of fact, he said this, Behold, I go forward, and he's not there backward but I can't perceive him on the left hand where he doth work but I can't behold him he hideth himself on the right that I cannot see him and so here's Job and he's in the midst of this grief and this sorrow And he says, I'm looking all around me. I'm looking in front of me. And I'm looking behind me. And I'm looking to the left of me. And I'm looking to the right of me. And there is no God. I can't see him. I can't feel him. I can't sense him. You ever been there? Where's God? But then look what he said. But. He knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job said, I don't see him, and I can't sense him, and I'm wondering where he is, but here's what I know. He's aware of what I'm going through. He knows about everything that's going on in my life. He knows the way that I'm taking, and I believe that when I come through this, that I will come forth as gold. I'll say it again, it's not our awareness of God that determines His involvement in our lives or His presence near us. Job understood that whether or not we can see God at work in our lives or sense his presence in our sorrow, he's still there. I don't know everything that all of you are going through this morning. But I do know this. Jesus knows. Oh yes, he knows. He's not left you. He's not forsaken you. You are not alone. Are you listening, church? Because in his time, and this is the big bummer about this, it's not always in our time. But in his time, he will reveal himself to you, as he did to Job. Because at the end of his life, Job was able to say this in chapter 42, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. I wasn't able to see you at one point in my life, but, but now I'm not, it's not just that I've heard about God. It's now that I, I can see Him. I know that He's real. Let me share this one final thought with you. The answer to our deepest need is not something, but someone. not something but it's someone still have your Bibles open I want you to look with me in verse 15 John chapter 20 look what Jesus said to Mary woman why weepest thou whom seekest thou don't miss that Jesus didn't say Mary What are you looking for? He said, Mary, who are you looking for? She was looking for something. She was looking for a dead body. But Jesus pointed her to someone, himself. Far too often suffering people tend to look to the wrong things in the midst of their sorrow and their grief. They look to things to bring them peace and strength. And sadly, they begin to pursue these things to the point of addiction. Most of you are aware that Katie and I lost our son, the Tyler lost his brother, 35 years old, in a tragic accident at his home. It's about seven months ago, it was in February. And shortly after that, I began reading a, a book titled "A Grace Disguised: How the Soul Grows Through Loss." It was written by a man, who had his family in the vehicle with him, including his mother-in-law and wife and four children. And they were hit by a drunk driver. And his wife died, and his mother-in-law died, and two of his children died in that accident. And he wrote this book, A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Law. And in his book, Jerry Sitzer warns his readers of the danger of developing addictions as a means of coping with the grief of loss. He writes, many people form addictions after they experience loss. Loss disrupts and destroys the orderliness and familiarity Of their world. They feel such desperation and disorientation in the face of this obliteration of order that they go berserk on binges. They saturate their senses with anything that will satisfy them in the moment because they cannot bear to think about the long-term consequences Of their loss. So they watch television every moment they can, work 60 hours a week, drink too much alcohol, go on a sexual rampage, eat constantly, or spend their money carelessly. In so doing, they hold suffering at a distance. And i just say it again this morning. The answer to our deepest need is not something, it's someone. And his name is Jesus. With that in mind, as our instrumentalists prepare for the invitation this morning, allow me, please stay with me, allow me to point out one more thing One more aspect of this story that I think is very applicable for us today and it's found in verse 16. Jesus saith unto her. I don't think that's the verse I want. It is, Jesus saith unto her, Mary. And then look what it says. It says, she turned herself. Mary... Turned toward Jesus when he spoke to her. And so that tells us this morning that she had turned away. And I just want to ask you today, is that where you're at? Has sorrow and grief caused you to turn away from Jesus? Have you walked or are you currently in the process of walking away from him? Are you looking somewhere else to find peace and comfort and strength? Have you turned in the midst of your sorrow, have you turned to something rather than turning to someone? Have you been looking at your situation through the eyes of the impossible? Or through the prospects of the I'm possible? Have you stopped to consider this morning the fact that perhaps what you're looking at right now is a huge burden, could quite possibly be a huge blessing in disguise if you'll just embrace it by faith and let it play out in your life? Would you pray with me today?